0: Live on this July 4th weekend. It is great to be with you. The weather changeable all weekend, but I think by the 3rd and the 4th, we're going to be in good shape. So hopefully, you have a long four day weekend. Along with Leah, I am Randy Tobler. Glad that you are here. And there's, of course, a lot to talk about this morning not the least of which is a letter to uh, Jim Jordan and his committee can, from David Weiss, you know, the guy that was the prosecuting Hunter Biden in the Delaware case, and about whom it was said by whistleblowers, he was told, that is Weiss, that he could not prosecute out of that jurisdiction or um, get special counsel. Well, he has sent a letter refusing to give data to uh, the committee because of the ongoing investigation, and... Um, saying that he has full authority. So there seems to be con- some confusion. There seems to be, again, now different uh, stories as to what the DOJ is saying versus the IRS whistleblowers, and the story goes on. But there's more. That is some new stuff, and if we have any new information on that, we will bring that to you if uh, Jordan or others have comments, because uh, this is this is pretty interesting stuff. Um, it, it, it really refutes what the uh, what the whistleblower said. Uh, what not just one, but a couple have said. But of course, there were some momentous decisions at the end of the Supreme Court turn released on Thursday and yesterday. Um, and. An angry Joe Biden stepped to the podium yesterday after it was announced by the Supreme Court. Their opinion was that his student loan cancellation plan would not pass muster and. Um, We'll have to. Spoiler alert: uh, Leah is going to be asked to comment on student loan after this. I don't know. But, but are you a recipient of student loans, Leah? Ah, uh, yes. Okay, we're going to ask what Leah thinks about that, (laughs) because being the good conservative she is, I know many in this position conflicted about the loss through the Supreme Court of the opportunity to get those loans at least partially forgiven. Here is Joe Biden yesterday, an angry Joe Biden in response to a reporter's question. Number five.
1: Good for you. Thank you very, very much for listening. We're going to get this done, God willing, thank you.
2: Mr. President, why did you give millions of borrowers false hope? You've doubted your own authority here in the past.
1: I didn't give any false hope. The question was whether or not I would do even more than was requested. What I did I thought was appropriate and was able to be done and would get done. I didn't give borrowers false hope, but the Republicans snatched away the hope that they were given and it's real real hope thank mr. you mr president you overstep you overstep you authority. did you overstep your authority i think the court misinterpreted the constitution
0: okay everyone i know says the record the court has actually returned to an originalist textualist model uh, what a what a novel thought just interpret the constitution for what it says what it means and uh the intent of the founders when it was written and then apply that to the current attempt, in this case, of a president to uh, overstep the executive branch's powers. Now, there's been a lot of um, consternation, and in just a moment we're going to ask Leah whether she is disappointed at this ruling or thinks that from an ideological standpoint, even though she may not get forgiven, it's the right thing to do. Uh, But in the meantime, we'll tell you that the great Tim Jones from the Jones and ARP show show, uh, will be with us at 625 just in a little bit to try to uh, get, we'll get his reaction on the Thursday's Affirmative Action decision, the um, web designer decision yesterday, and, of course, the loan debt forgiveness um, decision as well. Um, and later in the program, Andrew Arthur from uh, the, the um, uh, CIS.org um, which, of course, takes care of all of the immigration issues, the Center for Immigration Studies. And Andrew will give us an update on that. Virginia Cruder with her regular visit at 745. And then we'll talk to Mark Burrell, the author of Rediscovering the American Covenant on this July 4th weekend. Uh, and a little break from the serious topics of the day with Chef Andrew Gruel, who has something to say about pizza at 825. And Carrie Lake, the great Carrie Lake uh, from uh, Arizona and the gubernatorial candidate, um, will be with us at 8.45. Can't wait to talk to her. She's out with a new book. So you want to mark that on your morning calendar. Hopefully, whatever you're doing, getting ready for the big rib uh, uh, barbecue or whatever you're having uh, this weekend and all week weekend, we hope that uh, you'll stay with us as we uh, move along through the show today. Lee, are you disappointed at the loan forgiveness, or was it the right thing to do, even though you have to pay back the loans?
3: I think it's the right thing to do. I mean,
1: yeah.
3: I think, yeah. I mean, I know it stinks to have to pay back the loans, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do, so. Yeah,
0: you yeah. Well, I mean, with the enormous sums of money that you can make in radio as a radio producer, that should be accomplished, your loans, in what, within six to 12 months, you'll have it all paid off? Oh, or? gosh.
3: <laughs> I don't think I'd have them paid off till I die.
0: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Our team takes very good care of everyone here at the station, and um, and radio is a great business. But no matter what business you're in, when you have loans and you have the interest that well, I guess the interest was delayed, right? Although I guess it started reaccruing now, isn't it? Right about now, I think the interest starts um, you know accruing again. But it was delayed through the pandemic, so um, you know I think you're right. There are times when um, right is right even though it may not be personally advantageous and that's why we love Leah as the true blue patriotic conservative that she is because she's a principled person that is so important Um, you know they were channeling Nancy Pelosi when they were uh, when they made this decision in fact uh, in the opinion it was it was mentioned and um, I think we have a clip here on that Uh, don't we didn't I send you a clip on that Uh, I believe so Yes, yes, I did. Yep. Number seven. So you'll recall that in July of 2021, when this issue was first floated by Joe Biden, remember, he was getting ready for an election campaign. It was already heating up. Uh, and um, so he thought he started sprinkling out little gimme, gimme, gimmies to the American electorate, this time trying to capture the hearts and the pocketbooks and the votes of young people and not so young people with loans. And Nancy Pelosi, for the first time in her adult life, as far as I can tell, got it right when she clearly spoke about the separation of powers. Here it is.
4: The president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would has to be an act of Congress. And... Um, uh, I, I, w- I don't even like to call it forgiveness because that imp- implies a transgression. It's not to be forgiven, to get you know, just freeing people from uh, those obligations. Okay. And she blow uh, so on and, it, on, and it, on
0: and on and on. But that is not within the president's purview. Now, she, of course, pivoted on that a little bit and she evolved. But she clearly stated what we know. And we're going to ask Tim about that as to how what this means for other people. Um, Disputes and what has I think over the years, in the past oh well, two or three decades, become what seems to be an overarching ability of the executive branch, and this has been ex- you know with both parties uh, to overstep through executive orders and make law rather than the Congress, the people's uh, chambers to make law, the people's branch. So we'll talk with him about that. Um, there was uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot. And there is ongoing a lot of venom coming from the left on um, the, the affirmative action, action issue on, on Thursday. And we will talk with Tim about that as well. I, I know that all of us, it's sort of like the Dobbs thing. We have known for so long that it is it is so wrong to correct uh, a wrong with a wrong. And just because, you know, in the past there was racial discrimination and there was segregation and Jim Crow and on and on and on, um, you know, you don't, you don't correct that by then punishing a group of people who, A, in the first place, had nothing to do with that, and B, when those things are now, we are now a post-racial nation. Oh, Randy, what are you talking about? There's structural racism. Oh, well, I don't know. Barack Hussein Obama, I uh, he identified as um, you know black as far as I know. Um, so there was another little uh, thing that um, I found interesting, and that was in the response to – the affirmative action decision on Thursday, Michelle Obama weighed in, and she was, of course, she she released a, a note that I saw on Twitter. And I, I'm doubling down this morning, July 1st, 2023, on my stance that I think Michelle Obama may enter this race as we see a failing Joe Biden. And, uh, boy, Joe just was really all over the map with his – Leah, we had so many opportunities for Biden bites that I didn't even know where to start (laughs) when I was selecting moments. I mean, it was just one after another. Uh, We might even play this Biden bite a couple of times. Uh, Do you have that that Biden bite up? uh, I sure do. Okay, because on this 4th of July weekend, I thought it particularly rich that the sitting president of the United States, (laughs) the leader of the free world, the leader of the society that the planet looks up to, even though they may scorn us publicly, it's out of envy because of the greatness we are. For all of our faults and all of our glitches and all of our gaps and all of the opportunities yet for made, to be made for improvement, we are still the greatest nation the planet has ever seen. And uh, Joe Biden, in this Biden bite, um, demonstrates his rich knowledge of history. Take a listen.
1: Some of your former Senate colleagues on the Judiciary Committee would go as far as to say that it's anti-democratic. Do you agree with that? Well, you know, if I say it's anti-democratic, then it gets off a lot of trouble. <laughs> no, 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 but, but it, it is it's, its value system is different and, and it's, its respect for institutions is different. And in that sense, it is uh, it is not as embracing of of all what I think the, con- the Constitution says, we hold these truths, we sell that all men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator. That's the uni- uniqueness of America. We never we lived up to them. We never walked away from it. And this court seems to say that, no, that's not always the case. The idea there's no right of privacy in the Constitution giving states power that we fought a war over <laughs> in 1960. Um, you know, I, I just think it's... Um, this is not your father's Republican party. So <laughs> uh,
0: where do I where do I start here Leah um, the, the, He gets the Constitution mixed up with the Declaration of Independence. He gets the then I, the war that we fought in 1960. can you uh, during the next break can you please help? Elucidate what in the world he was talking about? What war uh, we fought in uh, in 1960? I'd like to know what what that is. Okay, <laughs> um, it, it's 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 truly amazing. And um, and then he talks about it's a the court is a scorn on the you know on on a threat to democracy. And he didn't really want to go that far. But I don't see where the court is a threat to democracy. I think that nor for democratic institutions. He is clearly confused. But at any rate, we'll step aside and we're going to talk to Tim Jones here in just a little bit uh, as he joins us to unpack the big three decisions, the trifecta uh, on the Randy Tobler show. Of course, uh, the because being an attorney, he will be able to talk about not only the immediate sort of legal weeds about some of these things, but as well as the impact, both legally and politically. Can't wait to hear from him on that. Tim Jones up on the Tobler Show in just a little bit. Stay there.
1: Well, look, it's this is a
5: tragedy. If you, if you care about inclusion and equal opportunity and care about folks who don't have much and trying to make it up today this is a tragedy it's a tragedy that's a result of a strategy and that's what I think we sometimes forget uh, this is a deliberate effort on the part of conservatives to hijack the courts and use them to do what's happening today the
0: well, Tim Jones, uh, that was Van Jones. Um, you didn't know that you had a brother on the other side of the fence, did you? Who uh, says that this is a deliberate attempt to hijack the court? And I'm so thankful you're here to help us unpack these three momentous decisions, starting in Thursday, the last, uh, you know, finale of the of this session. Um, maybe hijacking the court is hyperbolic, but I'm glad that Donald Trump made that happen. How about you?
2: Um, my my poor confused brother Van, my brother from another mother, Randy. He drank all the leftist <laughs> lunatic uh, coffee growing up, and that's what happened to him. So, Randy, we are so, returning. What? Randy, we the American people, we're we're returning to court through the through the well six. I was going to say nine. The six originalist judges to a constitutional America, because Randy, we were entering a post constitutional America, weren't we, Randy? I I read with. Yeah. Uh, with uh with with great um with great hilarity although also with great sadness when i see people like justice kagan uh rail against what she thinks is an activist court i mean Randy, that is that is the that is the height of uh of everything we say the opposite is true the porcelli principle right because randy you know that if they had their way they would enshrine uh the right to an abortion which exists nowhere in our constitution in any way and even justice uh uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a huge liberal, uh, declared that she, of course, was very pro-choice, pro-abortion, but she never felt that Roe v. Wade was decided correctly. But, Randy, Kagan and Sotomayor and uh, Ketanjay Brown, they're only mad because the shoe is on the other foot, Randy. They, they would enshrine all of these things that are nowhere in the Constitution. I, I can imagine them writing opinions about the, uh, the right of non-citizens uh, having the, uh, the right to vote, something that my co-host Chris Harps fights very strongly against all across the country. I could see them federalizing elections, something which I speak about often on a national level. Randy, they would, they would increase the taxation power of the, uh, of the U.S. government, as was done uh, by the liberals, plus, Ju- plus Chief Justice Roberts in the Obamacare decision. So, Randy, when they talk about the horrors and the perils, of an activist court, parroted by, of course, their talking heads like Van Jones in the corrupt, corporate, captured media. Uh, we know they're not serious people, Randy. They're they're mad, Randy. They're mad because the rage mob is being tamped down, and that we are being reminded that we actually do have a constitution and we do have foundational documents. They, of course, believe that they're all vestiges of white supremacy and colonialism, which is also very silly. But, Randy, that's, that's all it comes down to. They're mad that the, uh, the fads and the tyranny of the majority of today are not going to become the constitutional provisions of this country for tomorrow. The court, Randy, is supposed to be above all of that. The court is not a representative democracy. We have plenty of that already in our government. We have representative democracy in the U.S. House, in the U.S. Senate, in the executive and all the state legislatures, Randy, the judiciary is supposed to be a check on all that. Cause it's supposed to be above all that. They're supposed to take the long view and they don't always get it right either. You know, we they've had some horrible, uh, unfortunate, tragic decisions in their history, but I think this court, which Randy, I'm going to, I'm going to call it the Clarence Thomas plus Trump court. Uh, they've largely gotten it right.
0: I I couldn't agree with you more, and, and like you say, the the the, um, the infantile whining from the left, including the Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, Kagan on the one hand, Sotomayor on the others, some of their um, some of their dissent comments here, and how how hypocritical is it, Tim, when you have Kagan talking about and others about the activist court. And, you know, <laughs> when these yes. are some of the most activist legislators with robes that we've ever seen. And um, uh, it, let's go let's go to the student loan case. Now, this is one where she yes. argued, Kagan argued in her dissent that they had no business. The court had no business to get into this because of a standing issue that the states that sued. And I mean, Missouri had, you know, some some interest in this. Right. Because of the Mohila. Uh, thing and, and how that would accrue to losses to the state of the of Missouri mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, through mm-hmm. that um, that strange public-private partnership. But so they didn't really want to argue. She knew that she didn't have a case when it came to separation of powers, so they tried to dodge with a standing issue. From, standing, a, from an attorney's yes. standpoint, does that mean you have a weak case when you do that as a as yes, justice? Randy, because <laughs> Randy, it means you want to use a
2: procedural move to avoid arguing on the merits, right? And explain okay. to me, Justice Kagan how a state and, you know, by extension, its borrowers, which let's let's make this human like the left always tries to do to make everybody have a big pity party. In this situation, we have the victims, right? You're talking about the state. You're talking about the borrowers who are the students and the families. Randy, how is a party that has been harmed to the tune of forty four plus million dollars not have standing? That's, that was the loss to the state of Missouri. How, is, how are we not an aggrieved party? How, how do we not have access to the courts to address our grievances? And as to the substance of the matter, you know, again, I, I, I say it with a smile on my face and a song in my heart, but I'm also very sad when I hear Justice Kagan say that the law of contract should not be restored in this country, right? Because, Randy, that's what this case is all about. So she's saying the Supreme Court is an activist court. Because it's laying down the law on the ancient principle going well before the history of this country, going back to British common law, that when you sign a debt that you are obligated to pay that debt, we're going to throw that out the window because of a bunch of bleeding heart leftist liberals who want to control uh, higher education in our country because that's ultimately what they want here they they want to jack up the price of higher education by state and federal governments continuing to subsidize more of higher education which makes higher education more expensive but then they'll just go ahead and for quote forgive all that none of it's being forgiven it's not being plucked from the magic money tree randy as you know all of us who have either already paid our loans or never had loans in the first place we're going to pay for all the sons and daughters of the elitist of the upper crust of the college professors for, so their kids can go get stupid degrees that mean nothing and uh, continue to be a weight on society.
0: Well, yeah, you're right. And I, I, I was, I, I'm, glad you confirmed that because my suspicion was when you don't have a good merits, you, you start arguing process. And that seems to be Absolutely. what they did. Absolutely. Now, if we From go the to outset. the, let's go to the web, let, let's go to the web designer case with the Christian mm-hmm. web designer in Colorado yes. who refused to, to use creative you know, new, not not some stock image that she had in her computer that she uses as a, you know, as a generic, you know, wedding design. That really was not what this was about. This was about forcing an individual to use a creative talent to to express something they didn't believe in. And, and on a six to three, uh, you know, vote, they said, no, you, you can't do that. Can you unpack that for us and how fundamentally constitutional the ruling was?
2: Yeah, Randy, absolutely. And first of all, I do want to point out at the outset that um, even though, of course, the left was uh, equally outraged and foaming at the mouth by that decision, Randy, let's let's uh, let's recall that that was not one of the ones that Joe Biden uh, took the office of the presidency to the people on, right? The the ones that he took to the bully pulpit on were the ones where they fear their power being sapped to the largest. So the two statements, mm-hmm. the two cases that the president complained most loudly about and vociferously about and went to the bully pulpit on was the ending of affirmative action and then his student loan bailout plan. Uh, yeah. Randy, those were the two cases they were most upset about because those were the ones that they were trying to use to directly control the people. Randy, if they don't have the racist argument anymore, the democr- today, especially today's, today's Democratic Party uh, no longer has a reason to exist, right? If if we take away their, their their victim culture mentality that they use to control people as political pawns, then they just cease to exist. So I found it interesting that I didn't hear as much of an outcry uh, about the Creative Expressions case. Uh, but perhaps, Randy, that's because they realized they really don't have a leg to stand on there because that case, again, uh, what you may hear in the media is not what the case was decided upon. A lot of people are immediately going to presume that that was a case based on religious freedom. And if it had been, well, then, of course, the left would be absolutely enraged because they're all just a bunch of godless atheists. And they can't stand that the, 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 uh, the, the First Amendment right of, uh, of freedom of religion, not from religion, is in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Randy, that case would turn on the First Amendment right to, as you pointed out, expression, speech. This was a free speech case. And the left cannot, even though the, the liberal justices dissented, it was a little more of a tamp down dissent because, you know, they can't say the quiet part out loud. The left can't yet say we are opposed to free speech, although they are right. They really are. But they can't be so loud about it because that's where I think a supermajority of Americans will rally against them. So in this case, Randy, they basically the six the, three the majority said that someone under their First Amendment rights of freedom of expression, that also extends Randy to choosing not to express something right And isn't that right. what our nation was founded upon right this is not this is not a uh, yet <laughs> uh, a, a, a communist Marxist construct where if the Politburo says jump we all say how high right We're not to the point of complete Orwellian mind control yet So I think people need to realize that that the, the freedom the freedom of speech, is also the freedom to refrain from speech and not be forced into speech. And, of course, I think all nine justices and every legal scholar would agree that speech includes, as you pointed out, expression, the right to express, the right to create, or, in this case, uh, the right to refrain from expression or to refrain from creation. And I also want to point out, to remind people, that the plaintiff in this case, the, the, the the brave, courageous lady involved, the artist, uh, she brought this case herself. She knew what was going on in Colorado, so this is another Colorado case. And she's watched for decades the abuse that her fellow artist, the cake baker, has undertaken. And that did turn on freedom of religion grounds, and that gets a little more murky and complicated. So she said, "You know what? I'm going to seek a declare, before I do anything with my new profession with my with my new uh, with my new uh, company." I'm going to go ahead and get a declaratory judgment from the court that says I, don't, I do not have to be forced to engage in speech or creative expression that I don't want to be uh, forced to participate in. And that's why the case is so important, Randy, because that, that actually pointed out to originalists, to conservatives and libertarians, perhaps how to fight all of these cases in the future. Because at least for now, it seems like the right to free speech is, is something that is uh, sacrosanct at least for a majority of Americans at the moment.
0: Well, and Tim, what I worry about is there is already, I believe, a law, if it hasn't already been passed and signed, it's working its way in California. And, of course, where California goes, much of the rest of the nation will follow about you know, punishing someone if you choose not to call someone who identifies as a as a Tweety bird to call them Tweety bird, and you'll be forced there to call go. them that, even though you're looking at a human being. And so, I'm sure sooner or later we'll be having a version 2.0 of this free speech stuff. Now, the big, the granddaddy, of course, is the affirmative action uh, ruling, and I, it, it it seemed as though this was a matter of finally. Sort of coming to fruition, what Sandra Day O'Connor said back in, what, what was it, 2003, when they, she held her nose and voted to uphold affirmative action, but predicted that sooner or later, we've got to put an end to this, uh, using racism to, uh, to cure racism. Is that the way you read the affirmative action case, or was it something else?
2: No, I completely agree, Randy. You cannot, you cannot, use, uh, you cannot use federal governmental racism itself, which is all affirmative action is to justify what you perceive as other forms of racism, right? One form of racism, uh, does not cure whatever perception of racism you might have in general. And look, Randy, you know, uh, I sit here as a, as a, uh, a white guy, but you know, I refused, I refused to believe that I had any sort of white privilege. I did not grow up in a wealthy household. I grew up in a small business household, uh, son of a veterinarian who worked his tail off, my father, from dusk to dawn seven days a week. He, he grew up on a a dirt farm in southwest Missouri that literally had no running water, indoor plumbing, until after he returned from college, you know, to help my grandmother. Uh, his mother put some of that into this little three room farmhouse that he and his brother and sisters grew up in. So, you know, to, to that that's racist in and of itself, Randy, for 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 the liberal yeah. left to look at every white person and say, well, you're white, so you're a privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. no, this is a country where you get to determine your own destiny. We used to be a country where on the right and the left, everyone agreed that everyone should have equality of opportunity. Right. Not equitable outcomes, which is what the left is preaching nowadays. Uh, equity, uh, Randy means everyone gets treated the same, which means everyone becomes equally miserable, right? That's, that's <laughs> equity. That is, that is socialism, that is Marxism, that is communism. And as we saw in the 20th century, uh, communism always, always leads to oppression and oppression always leads to death. Communism was the largest cause of death of, of, of citizens worldwide in the 20th century. And the 21st century, communism's not faring any better. So Randy, this was a resetting, and what you know, I compare this, I compare the affirmative action case very much to Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade, because we had just gotten used to it, right, Randy? We we just got used to racial preferences. Affirmative action, unfortunately, had become embedded in the fabric of America, and shame on us for having that stand for so long. And you know, folks, you know, I I can't I can't sit here and tell you that that I can understand what it's like to grow up as a minority American in, in poor urban America, uh, cities that have been governed and ruined by Democrats for decades. You know who can, Randy? Clarence Thomas. And therefore, I would urge everyone, if you want to understand why the affirmative action case was decided the way it was uh, v- through the lens, through a historical constructive lens of a black man, then read Justice Clarence Thomas's magnificent opinion on this. And boy, Randy, can you... Boy, does the left does the left howl with hysteria and rage when when a when a black man or a Hispanic or anyone of any person quote of color dares dares to flee the electoral plantation and no longer toe the party line. Clarence Thomas to them is the most hated man in America. I think he's <laughs> one of the most amazing justices ever to wear the robe.
0: You're so right. Hey, can you hang with us uh, for the next segment to talk about the political ramifications of this, or do you have to get ready for your tea time? I know you got a I, tea time. I think, up.
2: I, be- I think I better see if I need to put on my galoshes or not, Randy. I'm going to have to jet off and see the uh, the morning the morning crew to, to hit the first tee.
0: All right. But it was well. I thank you discussion. for this, and I I know that people will uh, be waiting for with bated breath for your. Uh, further analysis and especially uh, not only the illegal analysis, but you offer the double whammy of also having that political eye too, having been highly you know, successful being the Speaker of the Missouri House, to, to talk about the political ramifications. And we will talk about that throughout the program because I think that is almost more interesting, especially in the context of the, uh, the the wave that turned into a ripple in 22 after Dobbs. And now you've got the equivalent yep. of three Dobbs that have loaded the gun politically for the left. And I think it's going to be very interesting going forward.
2: Yes. Yeah, Randy, I would just say uh, I would love to leave our listeners uh, with this thought firmly embedded in their brains as we head towards 2024. I would argue that no matter who the Republican nominee ends up being, whether it's Trump, DeSantis, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, pick whoever your favorite uh, person is. You have to vote for them because, Randy, we're looking at unfortunately, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito getting up there in years, and there was actually a story this week, I don't know if it was concocted by the, by the national corporate media or not, but uh, sort of um, hypothetically kind of thinking about uh, the two of them potentially retiring and not being on the court much in the near future. Now, I don't know that they personally have any plans to do that or not, but uh, they are getting up there in years, Randy, and that's yeah. two justices, and if a President Biden or Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom, God help us, has those two picks. Well, then suddenly, Randy, you've taken a 6-3 originalist court, one that wants to protect our country, save our Constitution. You've turned it into a 5-4 liberal majority. So folks need to keep that in mind. And so for anyone, for all the never-Trumpers out there and all that, let's remember what I said earlier on. This was the Donald Trump plus Clarence Thomas court that delivered us all these amazing victories for those of us who love our country, want everyone to have the opportunity to come here, prosper, and succeed. Because Randy, nobody's fleeing anywhere else, are they? Despite what the left says about what a horribly systemic, racist, xenophobic nationalist country this is, millions of people, Randy, literally risk life and limb
6: every single
2: day to get in here. So everything they say on the left about that is fake, phony, and false. We are gonna have another on yet another pivotal historical election Where the balance of the court, which is the only thing standing between us and constitutional Armageddon over the last two years. Look at these decisions, Randy, the way they went versus the way they could have went. And I would urge folks to keep that in mind because uh, your country could be turned upside down, inside out overnight with a 5-4 liberal leaning majority court.
0: Uh, so well said elections do have consequences and boy, we have just felt the impact of the right man at the right time with the right judicial picks. And that's Donald Trump that can never, mm-hmm. ever, ever be taken away from him, no matter what happens in his or our collective future. And we need to keep it in mind. Tim, may all your drives be straight and all <laughs> of your greens be no more than two putts this morning. Uh, thank okay? you, Doc. Appreciate everything you right. do every single Saturday morning for all of
2: us here at Newstalk STL.
0: Well, thank you, sir. Thanks for being with me. And uh, we'll be looking forward to you uh, next week on the uh, Jones and ARP show for more in-depth analysis. Have a good Fourth of July holiday, Tim. Take care. Same to you, Randy. All right, guys, when we come back, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, speaking of presidential candidates, um, speaks to young people's disillusion with America on this July 4th weekend. He nails it, but he offers a vision for hope. We'll talk about that, and a Texas representative who has a different idea of what Pride Month should look like. That coming up on the Tobler Show, along with Carrie Lake at 845, and so many great guests and commentary in between. Don't miss a minute of it. Be right back. I love Katie and Tony, too, and what a surprise, what a pleasant surprise to have them... uh, are they in the studio there, just talking about my show? That's really nice of them. Yeah, right. Come in and talk <laughs> about that. You know, we have the we have the most huggable, lovable family on a radio uh, family that I've ever been a part of. I mean, it's unbelievable. And at, at your grad party last week, that was in full display, Leah. Mm-hmm. And what a great party your folks threw for, for you! And uh, you know, all the night, all the news talk STL folks were there, and it was fabulous to see. And Katie had her baby there, and Tony had his kids there, I saw Jeff Allen. And Was it the first so time you've seen there. her baby? Yeah, live. I mean, I've seen well, the pictures. Well, <laughs> yeah. The first I met the baby, yeah. I don't know where Katie gets her energy, but I'd sure like to have a little infusion of that. She's like, uh, I don't know. She's just always full of full hyper energy power, isn't she? It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, Tony, who's uh, got a major leadership role at this station, and as well as being on air, one after another, everyone, um, everyone really comes together to make one of the, I think, the premier uh, talk stations in the nation—not just in this area, but in the entire nation. Um, and I listen when I'm out; I listen to talk radio in other in other communities, and I'm telling you, uh, this is. I listen to this station more than I listen to the, anything else I can get on streaming or anything else anywhere else, you know. I do have to keep touch with the national propaganda radio once in a while, Leah uh, NPR, just to know what the other side's saying and it's it's hurt it hurts me when I have to do that, but I do do <laughs> it. When I want to hear about, you know, uh, you know some kind of new tea from, uh, you know, Indonesia and learning about the new flavor from Indonesia. <laughs> the kind of things they cover there, you know. So Vivek Ramaswamy was speaking to what the polls are saying is an abysmal lack of patriotism in Gen Z, even millennials, disappointment with the country. Uh, And it was um, on this July 4th weekend. It was sobering, but he gives hope. Listen.
2: Tonight, we see the real problems in our country. They are real. We have an administrative state that runs the government instead of the real government. I'm gonna fix that. We're dependent on our enemy for our modern way of life in a way that was never true in American history. We depend on the CCP. We can rise up to the occasion and fix that. We have a generation of Americans, Gen Z, less than 15% of whom say they're proud to be an American. 25% recruitment deficit in the US military. 60% of whom say they would sooner give up their right to vote than to give up their
0: access to TikTok. Tonight, we see. What does that tell you? People would rather give up their right to vote than their right to post on TikTok. Leah Say it ain't true. Now you're a social media diva. Now there's no doubt about yeah. that. You are the you are the queen of social media here. I get that. But would you give up your right to vote if they took away your TikTok or your Rumble which people can watch us on or Facebook? But I mean, really? If if my Okay, let me ask you the question. If it was a choice from TikTok, do you post on TikTok? Yes, you do.
3: Uh Right? Yeah, but it's like way down the line as far as like Priority For me, like, my big one is Instagram.
0: So. Okay. If they took away, Inst- if it was a choice, hypothetically, between Instagram or losing your right to vote, which would you give up?
3: Uh, <laughs> I guess Instagram. Uh-oh. There was a little bit of a pause there. <laughs> I mean, TikTok, I can give up TikTok, but Instagram... You're hitting a nerve because <laughs> I take a lot of pride in how I run my Instagram. So,
0: yeah, I don't know though. I just um, it's troubling to me that young people is it is it a matter of do you think young people and and these you know what what did he say sixty percent of, uh, of of what is it Generation Z yeah would rather give up their right to vote than TikTok. So let's generalize that to say a large number, a large swath of young people feel more strongly about their social media than they do about their citizenship and their right to influence and be we the people, government, uh, you know, the electoral uh, the electorate. Uh, does that maybe just, is that more loathing of America and where we're at? Or is that just, just... um complacency and assuming that everything's going to be okay someone else will take care of this country and making sure that we stay on the right on the right path what do you think leah is it just a matter of people assume oh it's going to be okay this country's always been there it always will be there yeah
3: no i think that's i think that's right i think uh you know people my age just don't care so don't care about yeah but what happens
0: if you don't care I mean, what happens if you don't steward this very delicate, fragile um, constitution, which depends on on the people to be the governing body, not not the elites in D.C. Or do you think they've already given that up?
3: I think they've given it up. Like I just, I mean, I think maybe they don't even think about that. They just want to complain about everything going wrong. But you know, so
0: I don't know. I. Uh, I, for one, am just worried that you can't take something for granted. When you take something that is precious, like the freedoms that people enjoy, now, I mean, do, do Gen Zers think that in a in an autocratic country that they would be able to go down to the local dispensary and get their marijuana without even without any prescription, with nothing? That's not generally true in autocratic countries. They control things like that very much. The freedoms that people enjoy here are not. The case, including their marijuana <laughs> and all the other things they have. I mean, in China, your TikTok and your your social media would be really throttled back. You would not be able to have the liberty to post as you do now. You know that. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe we should, maybe we should, uh, rather than, maybe in return for forgiving $10,000 in student loan, We would demand that someone go live in North Korea for a little while or Venezuela or, you know, some other socialist armpit of a country. I think that would be interesting. Oh, well, uh, that's just my thought. That's um, well, we're running up against the break when we come back. uh, We'll, uh, of course, mix it up more here on the Tobler show. We've got a problem with churches gone mad in America. And we'll talk at, uh, at the, after the top of the hour about that. This story that Leah found is very disturbing. And um, I've got uh, a, some more sound from Kenny Zhu, who led this Students for Fair Admissions uh, Supreme Court case that led to the Student Loan Forgiveness Smackdown. More coming up on the Tobler Show here on 1019 941 News Talk STL. Happy birthday, America. At, uh, as Pride Month passed, we uh, we thought that we would say goodbye to it with a uh, an eye-opening expose. Oh, welcome back to the program. The second hour of the Randy Tolbert Show. Every Saturday on 101-994-1, News Talk STL. Leah, what are you laughing about? I forgot to reset the show. There may be some people just wiping the sleep out of their eyes joining us now, right?
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: I, yeah yeah well i assume that you know maybe maybe folks are just joining us so um we, we talked to tim jones if you didn't get a chance to uh to hear tim's reaction to an analysis on the uh the three big supreme court decisions of this week uh in the last hour make sure you catch it on the podcast and leah will have that up uh what later in the weekend right yeah, leah? yeah. monday morning yeah monday right. okay okay uh and coming up uh, later in the program, we have Virginia Cruda later this hour. And next hour, we're going to be talking. Well, Andrew Arthur at 725, uh, talk with him about um, this. Is a, I, I was able to talk to Andrew last week, uh, not couldn't get him on this morning, but uh, from uh, Center for Immigration Studies. You know, you haven't heard much about immigration and the borders. And so in light of the immigration rulings that came down the week before last, uh, we touched base with uh, Andrew Art Arthur. Um, So we'll play that at 725, 745, Virginia Cruda and Mark Burrell, who's a a major Patriot. And we've talked with him a couple of times on rediscovering the American covenant. uh, And uh, on this July 4th weekend, want to talk about that. Chef Andrew Gruel in the eight o'clock hour and Carrie Lake, gubernatorial candidate, you know, Carrie Lake uh, has out with a new book. She'll join us to wrap up the show at 845. So don't want to miss any of that. Now, so Pride Month just passed. Now, of course, um, some people want to make it uh, into into Pride summer. Uh, Richard Levine, the, uh, the man who puts on a dress, calls himself an admiral and a woman. And it just it looks like a Saturday Night Life skit. I'm sorry. I just it's unbelievable. This uh, the deputy secretary of HHS. Um, I mean, God love him. I mean, I, I feel so sorry for these people that just uh, they, they they desecrate the temple that is our body that was given to us by God. I feel strongly about that. And while I respect those people for being human beings and would, and would, and have taken care of them medically uh, do not make a judgment when it comes to the exam room. Um, certainly I have feelings about um, the, the mistake that's made when that is done. Just, you know, the same as a lot of these things that don't comport with the, um, the God of our fathers and his wish for us. At any rate, that's a good pivot to this, this uh, pastor of an evangelical Lutheran church, the ECLC, which is a very liberal branch of Lutheranism, who during pride month came up with what she calls the sparkle creed. She's the pastor of a Minneapolis Church. And Leah, when I first, when you said this to me, when I first heard this, I thought like you that maybe this was a Saturday night live skit. But it's real. This is the Sparkle Creed. And it's what she posted on her, and this actually has been around since 21. She said, I was voiced to texting the Apostles' Creed to a colleague, and it translated as the Sparkle Creed. I decided that's exactly what we need for Pride Month. So here's my first jab at it. Feel free to share it if it moves you. Now, those of you who are people of faith, you listen, this This is going on in a mainstream church. Well, a formerly mainstream church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And according to some reports, I have not confirmed this independently, an Action for Liberty supporter uh, said that this is where Senator Amy Klobuchar attends. I don't know. Listen to the Sparkle Creed from Reverend Rachel Small Stokes in a Lutheran church in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
7: I invite you to rise in body or spirit, and let us confess our faith today in the words of the Sparkle Creed. I believe in the non-binary God, whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the ace quilt whose feet are grounded in mud, and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to each of us, that love is love is love, so beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. Amen.
0: Now, that gives me the creeps to play that on my radio program. I agree. Leah, I rarely get the, I rarely get the creeps, but I, I play it as an example of why we need to dig in even further in defense of the Orthodox Christian tradition uh, that is the underpinning of this country. I'll expand that. The Judeo-Christian principle. And with the exception of radical Islam, and in being a free country, you could even you could even imagine that maybe we could even expand it reasonably to say, I, you know, the Abrahamic religions and faiths. While I disagree, with you know, I'm I'm not a I didn't raise my kids you no know, to be Muslims. I didn't raise my kids to be Jews. There certainly is a there is a a. Uh, the Abrahamic religions would in no way, shape, or form say that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, great and small, would ever endorse the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one right light and reflects it into, refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. It begs the question would this be to say that we should endorse? Uh, bestiality that we should endorse. Uh, we certainly don't endorse and condone uh, heterosexual mischief in terms of uh, you know, infidelity any more than we do and, and God would endorse uh, a validation of uh, same-sex marriage. And it's not to say that we don't love these people in the right way, in the way God loves us as sinners. But to have this replace the time-honored apostles or Nicene Creed or whatever, you know, orthodox creed you have in your church, it just, uh, I don't know. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. (laughs) I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, their child, their child, Leah, Mm -hmm. who had two dads. I guess referring to what? The earthly dad, Joseph, and the heavenly dad, the non-binary God. <laughs> and I do believe that God views all of us with all of our collective sins, right? We all have sins. But this celebration of a, a, a an, an unorthodox, ungodly, and certainly not as God created us, belief system that you can basically be whoever you claim you want to be. I was told, Leah, I was told by a person the other day, and I'm not going to say where or when, but it, um, let's just say a teacher in the state of Missouri, now retired, that she once witnessed within the last couple of years the students in her classroom barking out of the window Barking out of the window to another student walking down the sidewalk because said student believed that said student was a wolf. Identified as a wolf. Therefore, fellow students condoned, endorsed, validated, and um, further encouraged the misguided and, and truly mentally ill construct of this individual who thought they were a wolf. They're barking out the window. What have we come to? Oh, Randy, uh, pick your battles. Come on, we've got more important things. No, as the great Andrew Breitbart once said, politics is downstream from culture, and when the culture is eroding, when the when the culture is absolutely has no rudder, no true north. This is what. This is where. This is where we're going. And I, I continue to ask the question. I would love to ask, Reverend Rachel Small Stokes, would your rainbow spirit, would your non-binary God, who saw everyone as a sibling child of God, and in the calling to each of us that love is love is love, so, beloved, let us love, what if what if a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old girl in your, well, a 12-year-old who is girl by Eons, centuries, millennia of recognition that girls are girls and boys are boys with rare, 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 rare genetic de- exception, intersex. Would 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 that non-binary god of yours, Reverend Rachel Small Stokes? Why wouldn't that God then condone if a 12-year-old came up to you and said, I really fell in just, I just find this 50-year-old man so charming. And he wanted to take me to a motel and we just had the best time. You know where I'm going, ladies and gentlemen. Where do we draw the line of acceptable normative behavior. Oh, Randy, come on. What are you talking about? Would say the LGBTQ plus everyone be who you want to be. There are no rules. Don't tell me what to do. Well, okay. If children can decide at 10, 12, some have said uh, that it's okay to take Puberty-blocking hormones, cross-sex hormones, and have their breasts lopped off, or in the case of a male, I guess, have your penis lopped off, and a neo-vagina made, which is a joke, then why can't they make that judgment for themselves? Well, that's just absolutely not wrong, says the transgender assisting counselor, doctor, psychologist, pediatrician, whatever. Well, no. If they have the agency to make that decision, then why don't we give them the agency to do whatever they want to do? What is the, Who is your moral authority that says that it stops at transgenderism in terms of their decision-making authority? No one, zero, no one has answered that question to my satisfaction on the left. You know why? Because they know that theirs is a slippery road to absolute Poverty of mind, vacancy of the human condition. So that's a little a little recommendation for y'all. When you run across these arguments with people, just lead them down that road and ask them the logical conclusion to what you're saying is we give the agency... To every human being, no matter their age, no matter their state of judgment, no matter their developmental uh, prejudgment, uh, prefrontal cortex and their judgment centers, if we give them the agency to do what we're giving agency to transgender, so-called transgender kids who are confused and now socially virally infected, why don't we give them the agency to engage in relations with older people? And you know there are academics that are already on that on that line. They believe that. Oh, we don't call it pedophilia. We call it minor attracted persons. Really? That's my thought. What is yours? Oh, I didn't get to. Yeah, I did. I didn't. We haven't played a couple of. uh, I want to play representative Wesley Hunt, and we'll get to that later. Uh, Andrew Arthur will be uh, with us here at 725 in just a couple of minutes. So um, listen for more. It's the Randy Tobler Show where we talk about the issues that sometimes threaten our culture by virtue of the freedoms that we love. Isn't that ironic? We celebrate freedom, but if you don't handle freedom responsibly, you will ultimately lose everything. We, on this program, fight for what is right. Freedom with responsibility on this July 4th weekend. I'm Randy Tobler. There's Leah. We will be back. Andrew Arthur joining us on Immigration after a few words. was fun when we get together with Andrew Art Arthur who knows more about immigration than all of Biden's people put together clearly and I wish they'd listen to him and his buddies at uh, the Center for Immigration Studies fellow in law and policy there at the cis.org how you doing art thank you for joining me hey thanks so much for having me today you know we were talking about uh, there's been this deafening silence about immigration issues since uh, on, on really almost all the media. Uh, the left has been so concerned with Trump indictment. Of course, they didn't want to report on immigration travesty anyway. The right has been preoccupied with the Hunter and Joe things. You know, it's, it just seems like it's gotten lost in the din of of media coverage of other things. And yet... Um, we heard a little bit about Title Forty Two going away, and then you know the the administration was was uh, ballyhooing how how quiet it had gotten. Um, but I I wanted an update on that, and then a little bit on the SCOTUS rulings that uh, how they impact uh, you know uh, our policy on immigration. So let's start with an update. What's the reality of people coming across
6: the border presently? Well, it's as bad now as it has been. Uh, And the Biden administration is actively engaged in an effort to funnel legal migrants into the United States through the ports of entry. But, you know, thus far, it hasn't really worked. Uh, The number of apprehensions that we saw in May last month, about 160,000 people, uh, is as high as or, you know, would be uh, the most people apprehended in the month of May in any year that Joe Biden wasn't president of the United States. Records go back to 2000 and no may up until the Biden administration. If we've seen that many people apprehend to enter in the United States legally at the same time, the Biden administration is also moving more than 20,000 people a month into the ports of entry, somehow treating those people like they're doing it the right way, even though they're showing up with no papers, no right to be in the United States. So you can add those to those numbers. Uh, the releases are runs of thousands of them last month. Uh, but... At the same time, we don't know how many people are being handed over to ICE that ICE is releasing. How many people are coming through the ports that are being released? Although we know that about 99% of the people who have scheduled, and you're not going to be, believe this, Randy, but you can now schedule your ability to enter the United States illegally through what's called the CBP1 app. How many of those people are being released in the United States? But we know that it's about... According to uh, published reports, it's more than ninety nine percent of the people who schedule their illegal entries are released in the United States. So yeah, I mean it's <coughs> it's as bad now as it has been, um, and you know the Biden administration is actively engaged in hiding the scope of the disaster. It, it's 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 almost as
0: though they've they've successfully um, created through complacency, apathy, and I guess um, alignment. A, a media that now has recognized a new normal, right? And and I guess if the media recognizes it, then the rest of the people, they don't hear about it. So I guess like, well, okay, whatever, you know, if you don't hear about it, whatever. I mean, it's, it's almost like this is, have they established now the new normal? That's a big question, isn't
6: it? Yeah, and that's a significant uh, question. But, you know, this really is one of those issues uh, that the American people continue to be concerned about. Now, you know, this is the second leading issue next to inflation for Republican voters. About 20% of uh, Republican voters put it, you know, as their top issue. The number of independents who are concerned about it isn't quite as high, it's somewhere around eight, 9%. But they're still, you know, about 9% of independents put it as their top issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, considering everything else that's going on in the world, (coughs) foreign affairs, the economy, jobs, Inflation, you know, a lot of people are still focused on this. So, this is an opportunity for the Republicans. We saw that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida has rolled out his immigration proposals. We see uh, former President Trump continues to bring it up on the campaign trail. So, I think that you're going to see this image, this issue draw a lot more attention. But there are two other factors that I think are going to kick in as well. One is, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of children who have been released in the United States, if you were to put them all together in one school district, it would be the fifth largest school district in the United States. And we're gonna start to see the effects of this, you know, in the coming months, the coming years on our school system as more resources are needed to be dedicated to those kids, most of whom don't speak English, most of whom haven't received much education up to this point. The other issue is gonna, the other place we're gonna feel it is in the emergency rooms. We already know that there's an emergency room shortage in this country, in fact, not to be redundant, it's an emergency room emergency uh, that's been recognized by Yale University and various others. And this is a hot issue in states. A lot of people haven't put together the fact that much of that emergency room issue has to deal with these migrants. They don't come to the United States with uh, health insurance, and you know even the National Institutes of Health admits that they disproportionately, as they say, uh, use the emergency rooms as their primary care physician. So. You know, you're gonna start to see this squeeze. You know, the question becomes really whether people wake up to how bad it is before it becomes a crisis. I mean, it's already a crisis, but a disaster. Uh, Or, you know, whether they they step in and expect the government to do something different.
0: Yeah, and you know, you talk about that emergency issue. There's there's two impacts on every one of us and that is a economically because someone has to pay for those bills which guaranteed are not going to be paid and nor can anyone do a wallet biopsy as we call it in the industry you can't ask a person for an insurance card when they hit you at the front door you got to provide service at the emergency room and someone's got to pay that so that means prices have to go up to cover those costs and secondly is the more I mean perhaps the more important and proximate one to people and that's when you need an emergency room for your heart attack for your trauma for your whatever pregnancy gone south and you're miscarrying and bleeding to death um, you know will there be enough room in the end so those two things are really serious you know hit you where it counts kind of issues and uh, I, I agree with you it, we can't let this get off the table. You mentioned the big numbers: 150 uh, illegals, the 20k coming in through the ports, and uh, and and. Then what, did, uh, last time I talked, I th- we talked. I think we talked about the parole issue. How he really, uh, Biden has really expanded what is meant to be a case-by-case type parole thing to massive system systematic parole. Is that an additional dose of of? what we'd like to think if not illegal certainly unethically admitted uh, immigrants coming in is that another additional
6: bunch yeah and you know speaking of florida florida actually uh, you know championed two separate cases to you know crack down on that on those parole abuses pearls were running 80 90,000 a month uh, up until a couple of months ago Florida suit about that. And it's important for your listeners to understand if you enter the United States and you're paroled into this country, you can apply for work authorization right away. And within a matter of months, you become eligible for federal benefits. Mm. So this is a direct, uh, you know, uh, impact on, you know, the FISC and on the employment situation for the most disadvantaged Americans who are already here. Uh, so yeah, you know, the, 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 uh, state of Florida, Ashley Moody, the AG down there, uh, masterfully managed to steer two cases through the courts. They've managed to get that enjoined, and the Biden administration actually has had to stop uh, those massive pearls for illegal migrants. Now, I can almost guarantee you that those pearls are going on in the courts, and we have the state of Texas, or uh, at the ports, we have the state of Texas cracking down on that. At the same time, the Biden administration is going to people in their home countries—Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti. They're basically opening the door to those people to apply for parole from home, from Havana, Caracas, <laughs> wherever, and then fly to the United States, fly into you know uh, St. Louis, fly into you know Dulles, uh, and come here and basically get off the plane and be granted benefits. So that's. You know, uh, and we're talking about 20,000, 30,000 people a month who are doing that. All right. And we're talking. On top of everything else.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's one after another travesty here. Talking with uh, with Art Arthur, a fellow in law and policy uh, at the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. Okay. So the Supreme Court comes down with a couple of uh, things that I don't, they weren't really um, highlighted too much in the news uh, last week when they came down, but they directly impact immigration. Um, one was about. Uh, whether or not it's illegal for people to to encourage illegal immigration, I don't know. Are they talking about the judge the, the the lawyers who are there on the border, telling people what to say to, to to claim asylum and et cetera, et cetera? Is this a good thing or bad thing? The way it came down, Amy Coney Barrett came down with the decision. It was seven to two, and it uh, it upheld a law that makes it a crime to encourage illegal immigration. Right, because it. Uh, that doesn't violate
6: constitutional free speech protections. Good or bad? It's a, it's a good decision. It's a logical decision. This, uh, that particular provision is part of the provision uh, that criminalizes the smuggling of individuals into the United States. So uh, we know that, you know, driving somebody into the United States or picking somebody up at the border after they've entered the United States legally and transporting them here, that's a crime. The last element of that crime is encouraging people to enter the United States. And primarily, thats it's probably the least enforced of those provisions, but it is when you... Uh, you know, don't actually drive them, don't actually smuggle them, but you facilitate their entry into the United States. That's a good decision, and quite frankly, it's a straightforward interpretation of the Immigration and Nationality Act.
0: Would that limit what I've understood is a fairly common practice with attorneys and others basically giving people the script who are ready to cross the border, or maybe they're on the other, I don't know where it actually occurs physically, but or if it has to occur on this side of the border to be enforceable, but I mean, are those the kind of, Enablements that
6: can be squashed now, and will they be? If so, they two part question. One, they can be, but that gets to the second case that you were talking about, which is called United States versus Biden. Uh, And in that case, uh, you know, the Supreme Court was asked to consider what uh, Secretary Mayorkas has termed guidelines for enforcement of the immigration laws in the United States. And Secretary Mayorkas has put shackles on ICE agents to actually go out and investigate those cases, find those individuals, and refer them over to the U.S. Attorney's Office, mm. and also to take murderers and rapists and child sex offenders off of the street. We see all of the numbers uh, of individuals removed for all of those crimes dropped, and I can assure you there's still a lot of people out there who have committed those crimes who are removable. So the state of Texas and the state of Louisiana sued the Biden administration to, you know, lift those guidelines uh, and to give them the opportunity to uh, establish that there are individuals who should be arrested, who should be removed, who aren't being removed. And in a eight to one decision, and it's a little bit complicated, the Supreme Court held that uh, the states don't have standing to actually force the administration to enforce the immigration laws. This is rather, you know, exceptional. Given the fact that back in two thousand twelve the Supreme Court turned around and said that the states don't have the ability to enforce the immigration laws themselves. Now I'm sure that when Texas and Louisiana and any number of other states joined the Union, they didn't realize that they were basically leaving themselves this vulnerable to, you know, massive numbers of individuals coming into the United States. Criminals uh, you know primarily in this case because it, it addressed two criminal provisions but anybody else the Biden administration has largely just stopped enforcing the immigration laws in the United States they have declared a de facto amnesty it's now de jure and the Supreme Court uh, you know issued its decision in United States versus Texas it said no states don't have the standing to sue and go after that it's up to Congress to use the power of the purse appropriations to use its impeachment authority uh, you know, government shutdown if they want to have, uh, the immigration laws enforced. So that's now out of the courts and it's in, uh, the realm of Congress and it's up to Congress to act or not. So,
0: yeah. Stay tuned. They didn't really address the, the content of the issue, right? It was it was basically a standing question that they based it on, so.
6: Yeah, it was a standing question for uh, five of the justices. It was Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts, who were joined by the three liberals, mm. uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, and uh, Jackson. And uh, the concurrence, which was drafted by uh, Gorsett, said, look, the issue with this is not standing, it's redressability because, and this is a point that I've made a lot, judges can you know, issue decisions, but they can't force the government to actually arrest any given alien. Mm-hmm. They can't force the Biden administration yeah. to tell them you have to arrest and deport that guy. Um, and so you know, that was always the rock that this is gonna break on. So you know, on the one hand, it's sort of a galling decision for all those people in the states who are impacted yeah. the ways we just discussed by these policies. Uh, but on the other hand, it really doesn't change a whole lot.
0: Yeah, well, memo to Congress. Get off your duffs and protect our borders with some legislation or with some with some impeachment of Mayorkas. I mean, they they got to get on it. Art, right, thank you so much for unpacking stuff that's just, just complex when you try to un- look at these Supreme Court decisions and reminding all of us that, by golly, this is still a big, big issue, and um, we need to we need to you know bring it to the forefront of our discussions with persuadable individuals when we're having these political talks. We, uh, we hope folks will stay in touch with you and your great colleagues at CIS.org, Center for Immigration Studies. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Randy. You know, the uh, immigration issue is one that propelled Donald Trump to the election in 2016, and in light of... What that led to with the nomination and eventual confirmation of three Supreme Court justices who were a a pivotal, a a necessary part of these great decisions we saw this week Uh, and, uh, you know, others we've seen throughout uh, their terms. Uh, It is so important and, and it reminds us how this issue, this issue, this immigration issue cannot be left to drop. It needs to be an important one. I'm going to ask Carrie Lake about that when we talk with her at 845. Uh, She's out with a new book and we're going to talk with her about what her next moves are politically or otherwise in her life, where she came from a a news broadcaster to, uh, you know, national prominence as a gubernatorial candidate who probably should have won Arizona had the election been run properly. Uh, There's a lot of debate about that, of course. Um, And uh, and Other Matters, Uh, her new book is out, uh, and looking forward to talking with her about that. When we come back, Virginia Cruda, and I'm going to ask her about some of the young people's attitudes towards America on this beautiful July 4th weekend. Well, it's not so beautiful weather-wise right now with all of the changeable weather this weekend, but I think Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday are going to clear up pretty well from what I can tell. I'm Randy Tobler. there is Leah Almstead, and if you are uh, watching us on... uh, Facebook Live or on Rumble. We're glad you're there. Make sure you comment on things. If you want to call in and join in the program, it's 573. uh, Did I say 573? 314 912 1019. 314 912 1019. Don't you laugh there, Leah. I'm just still waking (laughs) up. All right. We'll be back with Virginia Cruda in just a few minutes. Stay there. Welcome back to the program, 745, and it is time to wish Virginia Cruda a very happy American birthday as we uh, <laughs> fight to save our American values. How you doing, Virginia? Thanks for joining me on this July 4th weekend. I'm good. How are you? I am good. Um, I, was, I was buoyed to think that, man, maybe there is hope that the Constitution and our allegiance to it can be saved with the... Uh, with the three decisions this week. How about you?
8: Yeah. You know what? I was, I was thinking about this and I tweeted about it too. um, Especially with the, with the three Oh three creative decision. Um, If you read the dissent uh, from, from justice Sotomayor, the argument she's making is that a person's right to have a specific person design the website for their same sex wedding that supersedes the person designing the website's first amendment right to free exercise of religion and expression etc
0: according to the state of Colorado that Mm
8: -hmm. no according to just and not, not only that but if you don't let the same sex couples rights to have a specific wedding website designer trump the the first amendment expression rights of the designer in question then you are making the same sex couple into second class citizens now riddle me this is that website designer in any way preventing those two people from getting married No. Is that wedding website designer preventing those people from having a wedding website? No. No, she's only preventing them from having a wedding website that she put her name on. That's it. That is the only thing that she is denying them. And I'm sorry, but I'm not sure you actually have a right to that. Now, my question is well, for, this. How did this end up at the Supreme Court? How were there judges that let this get by? Wow. Yeah. That's my question. My question well, in is other how words, there were people who actually agreed that the yeah. people's right to have a specific wedding website designer superseded the First Amendment rights of the designer in question. There were enough people who believed that that this made it to the Supreme Court. And that is a bigger indictment of where we are, I think, than almost anything else going on right now.
0: I think what I'm hearing you say, Virginia, is that has has the woke ideology and your obligation um, gen- generically, your our yeah. uh, individual obligation to validate not only validate but participate. In something we don't believe in, has that now yep. infiltrated every aspect of our society, including the lower courts and the state courts, right? And the, you know, the legislatures who passed the bill in the first place. That's a scary exactly. thought, isn't it?
8: Yes. And and that's that's my concern is that, we, yes, we have this. And and I, I, I hesitate to bring this up, but this is something that came up a lot during the 2016 election. And this is a, a, what a lot of people were voting based on was the Supreme Court because they knew whoever won in 2016 was likely to have at least one Supreme Court justice. Think about this. You remember what happened with the Republicans when Justice Scalia died. They chose not to move forward with, um, a, with Merrick Garland's nomination. Right. If Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, what are the odds that she would have reappointed Merrick Garland just to rub it in the Republicans face? Very high. We could have had these decisions go down with Merrick Garland plus two additional justices chosen by Hillary Clinton. And you tell me where you think we'd be now if that had happened. Yeah.
0: You're right. Now, let me ask you this question. I, in the last hour, well, I guess it was, uh, I think it was last hour. I propose this hypothetical mm-hmm. if, in fact, this decision had come the other way, where one's creative instincts and skills and competencies now have to be directed in whatever direction another individual, another American demands. Um Who's to say that then if that would have come down in the other way that this web designer or a cake maker or anyone else wouldn't have to then if a pedophile came in, a minor attracted person came in and wanted them to make an an image on the cake with, uh, you know, a, 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 a minor having relations with an older person what would prevent them from being obligated to do that? Had this come down in another way in, and had the court been constructed in another manner, as you just described, is that hyperbolic, ridiculous, uh, absurd, or is it a logical conclusion as to the slippery slope and where it leads you?
8: Well, I I mean, it is the, in one, on one hand, it is the argument absurdum, you know, the, you're taking it to the absurd intentionally because, I mean, imagine somebody who wanted a picture like that on a cake. I mean, that's, that's a little creepy just to begin with. But the question is who are we going to have to cater to in the end? And the well, right. answer I mean, that is, makes the point. If you Why not don't put Why not? a wall if up you, somewhere? Yeah. If you don't put a wall up somewhere, there won't be a wall. So you're you're yeah. right in saying that it'll go that far. But yeah, it's it
0: is well, look at what look at what Jordan Peterson Jordan Jordan Peterson the 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 you know mm-hmm. public intellectual who's known worldwide yeah. now and widely scorned by the left his battle started at, what was it 7 14, 2014 15 where Canada had this crazy law where if you don't if you don't call someone by their chosen name uh that that it, it is it's a crime I mean I don't think it's a civil penalty I think it's a criminal penalty they're thinking of you know, I mean, I don't know where it ends, Virginia. I mean, I, I, I know you're talking about argument yeah. ad absurdum, but where does it end? Yeah. Uh, why should yeah. I be conscribed to, to subscribe to something I don't believe in?
8: Yeah, I I think it's different to call somebody by their chosen name than it is to call somebody by their chosen pronouns. And I, I realize that I'm splitting hairs here, but somebody says, I want you to call me this name. they it could be a nickname it could be anything it doesn't really matter you know, you know what i'm saying but when they say no these are my pronouns they are changing how we feel about the pronouns that address all people if you, yeah. you have one individual comes to you and say actually i'd rather be called sandy well i don't care yeah. you know but and, and it doesn't matter, male, female, whatever. I don't, I don't care what your chosen nickname is. But when people come up to you and they say, "Well, my my pronouns are B and Fairy," well, no, no, they're not. A, you don't get your <laughs> own pronouns, and B, those aren't pronouns. Like they yeah. they aren't pronouns at all, much less any belonging to you. So. That's where I draw the line is the pronouns, and I think that's what the Canadian thing was. It was about pronouns.
1: Yeah. Although, although
0: I would, I I would counter though, Virginia, that. But I would counter that if you asked me to call you instead of Virginia to call you Victor, I I have the right in this country to be rude and not oblige. Well, no, you do. That would be rude. It would be uncivil. Personally, yeah.
8: You know, I have I have far less of a problem with somebody who says I have a new name, call me this, than I have yeah. pronouns that are attempting to rewrite the way everybody looks at yeah. gender. And to, to me, that's very different because they're taking ownership you, of something that belongs to everybody. That to although me, that, I have to that's, that's tell
0: you, I wh- wh- when I see when I see Richard quote Rachel close quote Levine. A man with long hair and a dress. Man, I have a difficult time calling that person, Rachel. I'm sorry. It's just me, Virginia. Oh, I understand that.
8: I understand that, absolutely. But what what I'm saying is that there's a a scale to it, I think. And if it was a random person saying, this is my name now, as opposed to, I want you to change the way you look at something that belongs to everybody. Pronouns are something that everyone uses, that everyone that apply to everyone equally and that's that's my issue is when you ask me to apply pronouns to you specifically in a different way than they apply to everyone else that's different that is not it's not okay and it's not something that you own you don't you don't Uh, have the power to change what they mean
0: in this last minute that we have together, Virginia, a very important and pressing question on this weekend, uh, where we celebrate America's birthday, will it be burgers, brats, pork steaks, or ribs at the Crudo household over the next few days?
8: <laughs> you know, I really haven't thought it all through yet. I've got I've got a couple days to make up my mind, but I've got, definitely got the grill outside, and when it stops raining, I'm taking the cover off. So.
0: All right, all right, all right. We're going to well, maybe we'll, we'll have to talk about what it uh, what the determination was next week when you join us. Hey, thanks for all you do for this show and for this country. Really appreciate you and your very very um, just the way you analyze things. It's a one of a kind. Virginia Cruda at VA Cruda <laughs> on Twitter. Thank thanks. you. Appreciate it. Uh. All right, there she is. Uh, All righty, guys. Uh, Look, there's lots more to come in the show. And um, at the top of the hour, we're going to be talking with Mark Burrell, uh, Rediscovering the American Covenant. You won't want to miss it because this map, this is a roadmap to restore America. And on the heels of the decisions on Thursday and Friday, hey. I think we're on that journey to rediscover and restore America. So we will do that with Mark Burrell and then chef Andrew Gruel at 825, a little fun topic. And uh, I talked with him earlier this week. We'll play that for you. Uh, And then Carrie Lake, the great Carrie Lake at 845. Anxious to talk to her about her new book, Unafraid. And there's no doubt she is unafraid. That's it for the second hour of the show. Where's it going? Look forward to seeing you next hour on the Randy Tobler Show, 1019 941 News Talk STL. Welcome back to the third hour of the live Randy Tobler show on News Talk STL 1019941 here on the 4th of July weekend. And um, we wanted to celebrate America, of course, this day uh, and all weekend. We want to we want to reconnect Americans with the pride that seems to be lost. And whenever we want to do that, we talk to Mark Burrell. Why? Because he's the author of Rediscovering the American Covenant, Roadmap to Restore America. And Mark, thank you for joining me on this uh, birthday celebration weekend. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Randy. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, yesterday and the day before in the Supreme Court, on the heels of a very momentous 2016 election that, if nothing else, Result: There wasn't permanent economic prosperity, there wasn't permanent uh, economic, uh, energy independence, it was temporary, but we certainly will have long-lasting effects of the judicial um, appointments under Donald Trump, and boy, we saw the results yesterday and on Thursday, didn't we?
9: Yeah, we sure did. It's amazing to me, for all the conservatives that are out there that are still never Trumpers, that there's not a recognition of just how instrumental and in, in the long-term impact of his three appointments to the court. My goodness, can you imagine if we had not had those three appointments for this last round and the round before it of uh, of SCOTUS decisions, it, we would be in such a different place. And um, yeah, we we need to thank the Lord for uh, for having given us uh, Donald Trump for, if for nothing else to make those those appointments.
0: And we sure live in a topsy-turvy world, and uh, with polls showing that a historically low number of U.S. adults describe themselves as extremely proud as America. Gallup poll, 39% of adults expressed extreme pride, only a little more than a third. Um, Yeah. And uh, the number was four points higher in 2021, 16 points higher when they first asked the question uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, and it's been as high as 65 to 70%, for things are waning. And I wanted to play a little something for you. Representative Wesley Hunt, Mark, has proposed that on the heels of the just finished Pride Month, when Richard, airfinger quotes, Rachel Levine, said that this is the summer of Pride, Wesley Hunt out of Texas proposed, and he's got, I think, a, a resolution in Congress pending um, uh, that we call july american pride month pride over america month here's a little bit of a of a of a of an ad that they uh, that they made to try to pr- to try to uh, promote this this notion take a listen to some we've got to do a better job of
1: getting across that america is freedom freedom of speech freedom of religion freedom of enterprise and freedom is special and rare it's fragile We've got to teach history based not on what's in fashion, but what's important. I'm warning of an eradication of that, of the American memory that could result ultimately in an erosion of the American spirit.
0: Okay, and it goes on and on, Mark, uh, with a lot of uh, Reagan you know, uh, sayings and, yep. uh, and JFK and Martin Luther King and others. And it really is a call for America to go back to our founding principles. And that's what your book, Rediscovering the American Covenant Roadmap to Restore America, is about. I'm feeling a turning of the screw in all the good ways and a pushback against the woke yep. erosion of the America we love. Are you? Yeah, and, and what we need to do is be ready to offer the
9: true story of what happened in America, um, and and that starts with going back and and looking at and examining the Declaration of Independence, which I assert in my book Rediscovering the American Covenant is our most important founding document. A lot of people look at it like it was a, a dear John letter to King George that we were leaving, and we were upset because we had to pay taxes, and gosh darn, we you know that's terrible and. But that's not what it was at all, Randy. It was a covenant. It was a contract. It was an agreement between the representatives of the colonies who gathered in Philadelphia in July of 1776 and the, and the God of the of the universe, the judge of the universe. Uh, that's the quote in the last paragraph of the Declaration. And what they did there was really uh, something special and unique. They did four things. They acknowledged God. They did that in the first paragraph when they said, uh, in in light of the law of nature and of nature's God, which all men and and women are allowed to, to live under, and then they describe God-given inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and then they say that governments derive their just powers through the consent of the governed. So what did they do there? They explained the theology Behind civil government, they explain what had happened. They list 27 charges against the king and the British government, not four charges, not 10 charges, 27, just to make the point, right? And then in the last paragraph, they appeal to God with that phrase I mentioned a moment ago, appealing to the judge of the the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. Rectitude means truthfulness. And then that last sentence, pledging their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honor, They were making a solemn covenant, an agreement amongst themselves, appealing to God. And then they signed it, and then they declared it. And so it's those four things that they did, Randy. They acknowledged, they appealed to God, they committed, and they declared it. And that is the biblical template for how to start a nation or a community. That's what the pilgrims did in Plymouth in 1620. It's the same template in fact it's the same template that we all follow when we get married and and that's not by accident because communities and nations are made up of what families and this is why what's happening with Pride Month and the LGBT movement and the trans and all that ultimately it's destroying the family which is destroying the bedrock of society so we we need to be ready to explain this incredible American experience and really it represents our true american identity and that's what we've got to be ready to explain and that's what the book is all about
0: now mark what would you say to those and i think it is it is a it is an important discussion to have that say look mark you're It sounds like you're asking you're you're asking for a theocracy. And I mean, look at what happened in Iran when we had, you know, we had the mullahs determining what what's going to happen. And and after all, Thomas Jefferson and others were not really what you'd call your your Bible beaten, uh, you know, hymn singing, uh, you know, Protestant Christians. You know, they were Masons. They were deists. Uh, What what's your response to that in terms of the safeguards on a government forced uh, religion? What do you say?
9: Yeah, so this is a a really important question, and I deal with this fully in the book. In fact, one of the things that I looked for when I was trying to understand what the various positions were is just a simple explanation. Like, show me a table. You know, Randy, if you and I were having a conversation about prophecy, we could point to the various positions that are well-established. You know, everyone knows what they are, and uh, the tribulation, you know, when's Christ coming back? We can talk about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and... And we know what they are. It's not the case for this topic. And so one of the things that's in the book, in fact, it's I think on page 61, it's a table that lays out the four different positions. The first two, one is the divine right of king, which is the top-down you know, king ruling, which was the problem that we had leading up to the American founding. The second column is rule by or divine right or rule by the church. And that's where theocracy... Christian nationalism. That's where those positions fit. And the key difference between what I advocate in the book and explain is what the is what the Bible actually teaches, is one word, liberty. That's the difference. Liberty means the ability to have and express opinions. Uh, that's religious liberty. Civil liberty means the ability to accumulate and manage property, including your physical body. Because if you can't uh, you know, have charge or control over your physical body, then your property rights are meaningless. So so liberty is everything. The third position in the in the table I'm referring to is what I would call um, separate but submissive. So it recognizes that there's, you know, uh, two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom in, in heaven. There's this earthly realm. So there's two. We recognize that. And this is the position the modern evangelical church takes. It's sort of a submit-and-pray-come-what-may position. Then the fourth position, this is the one I'm advocating for. This also recognizes two kingdoms, but it simply says, while we're here on earth, it is pretty clear, if you look at the full body of evidence in the Bible, that God expects people, he expects all mankind, to step forward and establish a just civil authority. I get that from Genesis 9, 1 through 6. It's especially called out in verses 5 and 6. That's where God gives us the institution of civil government. And so the question that becomes, well, how do you do that? How do you how do you start a nation? And how do you govern a nation justly? And note this is all pre-Israel. <laughs> but what we get through the example of Israel is how you do start a nation. And that happened through the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 19 through 24. And if you if you look at that process, you get those four words that I described, acknowledge appeal commit and declare and then of course you get lots of other information about how to govern justly and that is the template god gave us that example of israel to show the world how to govern justly in a way where he would bless them so it's really pretty clear if you're looking at the full body of evidence and that's exactly what I do in the book, Rediscovering the American Covenant. And that's why it's so different, Randy. I, you know, I didn't wake up one morning saying I wanted to be an author. Gee, what should I write about? It wasn't that way at all. I've had a teaching ministry for 35 years, and uh, I started studying this and then started incorporating it into my teaching. And I didn't see it. I didn't, I, there's lots of books on Christian history, or Chris, history taught from a Christian perspective, but not a taught in a way that describes the theology behind civil government. And so that's what's different about this book.
0: We're talking with Mark Burrell, author of Rediscovering the American Covenant, on this uh, weekend when we uh, look forward to July 4th, when the uh, the official celebration day is. But I think we look for opportunities to celebrate the America that... um, is uh, is always under threat because of the very liberty. How ironic. The very liberty that God gives us uh, has to be handled responsibly, and that's what I take out of the appeal uh, throughout your book, Mark. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that the very underpinnings of our society, as you just described, are threatened by the very institutions that should be upholding them, and, and I, I hold up as the first evidence a piece of evidence here. We talked about it earlier in the program. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was a, there's a growing fad. That, well, I know you're aware of it, but a particular instance that, that just broke my heart uh, producer Leah brought this to our attention. Um, a, uh, a church, uh, an evangelical, Well, they call themselves the Adina the Christian Lutheran church, uh, the Adina community Lutheran church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, the pastor there, Rachel Small Stokes, in 2021 was doing a voice uh, to text version of the Apostles' Creed, and yeah. in her words, uh, that the, I came up with a translation that as often voice to text will do, and she calls it the Sparkle Creed. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and who saw everyone as a sibling. I believe in the rainbow spirit on and on and on. I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love. Mark, isn't it time to challenge our religious institutions to get back to the God of the Bible and abandon the woke, I will say heretical uh, theology that they are spewing because it doesn't help the cause, does it?
9: It is absolutely time to call out, um, you know, they claim to be part of God's family. And what I've seen, and by the way, I, I saw her recite that, um, and it's, it's tragic. I mean, it's just so amazingly yeah. incorrect. And and what I have seen, there's a theme through what I've seen through the evangelical church through the last 20 or 30 years. And what they've done is almost make an idol out of love. They love love. Yeah. And they can't imagine doing anything that would be perceived as unloving. And so as a result, they just keep bending and yielding to the woke pressure, which is you know this idea that uh, it's, it's a Marxist ideology, it's not even close, remotely close, to a biblical worldview. And rather than, than understand the biblical worldview and challenge it, even in a respectful way, you know, a quote, um, now I'm using air quotes, loving way, but a forceful way with conviction saying, no, that's not true. God isn't uh, non-binary and plural. <laughs> that's not the way it is. And here are the <laughs> verses that prove it. And, and if you're challenging the Bible itself, then you've really got to deal with the claim that the Bible's true and all the evidence, the mountain of evidence that it is true. There's so much that um, a lot of folks I'm finding are not as aware of and so they just go right. off to these incredible diverted and incorrect views that are leading their congregations astray, all in the name of love. It's tragic to, yeah. to, to see that happening. Yeah.
0: We were up at a conference in Minneapolis uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, for direct primary care medicine, which is what I've embarked on. I've abandoned the medical industrial complex, and, uh, and both I and my patients are loving it. Um, and as we walk down the street, with human feces on the gra- on the ground with um knocked out uh, respiratorily depressed uh, people lying in the streets being tended to by By people, by, you know, uh, first responders. I'm not kidding you. We walked past the, I think it was the Westminster Presbyterian Church, right in the heart of Convention Plaza there in uh, Minneapolis, with pride all over their you know, revolving uh, electronic sign there. And I just, my heart sinks. And when I, it it, it makes me feel creepy, Mark, to read this Sparkle Creed. I mean, it just makes you feel creepy. Uh, And we've got to push back because all is lost if we lose our biblical worldview, as you said. It's just tragic. Hey, Mark, I want to thank you for being with me and for um, fighting the good fight and standing your ground and and imploring all of us to stand our ground uh, through rediscovering the American Covenant, Roadmap to Restore America. I would hope everyone would read that and then go out and, um, you know, be disciples to all, not nations, but this nation, right?
9: Amen. Amen. Yeah. And read your declaration this July 4th. Yeah. We started doing that as a family and uh, it's, yeah. it's really meaningful and that's really what yeah. we're supposed to be doing. And in, in July, especially on July 4th is recommitting right. to that incredible covenant that our forefathers gave us.
0: Well, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for being with me. And a happy America's birthday to you, Mark Burrell. Appreciate it. You as well. Take care. All right. There he is, gang. Uh, well, let's lighten it up a little bit, because I believe uh, the God of the universe will make sure it turns out the way he intends it to be and restore us to Eden, to use a metaphor. Um, but we'll come back and talk with Chef Andrew Gruel in a conversation I had with him last week. I want you to hear that. And uh, maybe it's time to have a Pizza party to replace the old tea party up in New York City. That and more about the hospitality and restaurant industry from Andrew when we come back on 1019 941 News Talk STL, The Randy Tolbert Show. Carrie Lake coming up at 8
7: 45.
0: I've had the pleasure of interviewing Chef Andrew Gruel a couple times, and I'm addicted to your Facebook and your Twitter and your your website, Chef Gruel, because my wife's a big foodie and has taught a little culinary herself. And so if I show her what's on your site, I get to eat what she tries to make. See, it works out pretty well. How you doing?
5: Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. That sounds like a pretty good deal.
0: Yeah. And uh, you are, of course, a legendary chef in the Southern California area. And you're a little worked up over the New York uh, City, your colleagues in New York City that maybe they're, their charcoal and wood fire pizza ovens may be threatened. I mean, it's ridiculous that it, the restaurant industry is tough enough, isn't it?
5: Yeah, this is what they always do: is they come at you and they chip, chip, chip away more costs, more fees. You know, no big deal on their part. But but let's even pull back from this and just say, okay, what does New York have left? Right? It's been really rough on New York since COVID. And then the changing administrations, the love for crime, the uh, you know defunding of the police. New York has become a disaster. But still, people go for what? The food, and specifically the pizza. So what do they do? They go after the pizza. Uh-huh.
0: It's crazy, but now they, they had a, a basically their version, a new version of 2.0 of the Boston Tea Party the other day, <laughs> the pizza party. I saw a guy hurling pizza slices over, a, I guess it was over the fence onto city hall or something. <laughs> There's a rebellion going on, and those New Yorkers, they're not going to take this laying down. I mean, this restaurateurs are the most resilient, um, tough people you know, because it's a tough darn industry, and uh, I don't think they're going to take this Uh, lying down, do you?
5: Well, yeah, there's always a break point, and I think that, you know, going after our pizza certainly is one of them, but I don't know, you know, I... Firmly believe that this is just the first shot fired. I think that this is uh, foreshadowing what's next to come. It's the coal-fired ovens, it's the wood-fired ovens, and then it's the gas stoves and mm. the gas ovens. I think they're going to be quickly in line to get whacked by the New York, uh, you know, government mafia. Mm.
0: We're talking with Chef Andrew Gruel at Chef Gruel, G-R-U-E-L, um, judge in the Food Network, uh, and, uh, restaurateur. Now, I, I wanted to touch base with you about the restaurant industry. Um, when I look at the parking lots in our communities here in Mid-Missouri, um, things i mean there's a lot of people that had a lot of pent-up desire to get back to sit down dining but but i remember during that talking to my friends in the industry they were worried if it was ever going to come back um because you know it just became the talk of the town and the, and the obligation of the day to get carry out and take it home um what are you what are you finding what are the trends as far as you know dine in carry out
5: well, it's 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 dine-in has come back, carry-out is still a huge thing for people and obviously through the third party apps and those Silicon Valley uh, companies and conglomerates are certainly doing every single thing they can to continue getting people to use the apps and to do dine-in and take-out via the apps. Is it working? I don't necessarily think so. I think that people miss the days of sitting down and engaging with other people, friends and strangers alike in a restaurant or cafe type setting, at least that's what we're seeing. You know, we opened up after about six or seven months ago, we actually went from the fast casual world of multi-unit kind of takeout focused restaurants and we opened up a full service 5,000 square foot restaurant and bar really because we knew that this was coming and people love it. You know, people are coming and dining out as much as they possibly can. So I think it depends on the community and I think it depends on the mindset of the people in which you're serving. Um, but for us, it's worked out pretty well.
0: Now, your new place is Calico Fish House. And I'm glad to hear that people are, are returning. I mean, I I know we sure missed the dining experience. But again, um, it's you know what the, the challenge is, though. I don't know. I, I don't know how you're making it in the food industry you know I mean because with costs going up everywhere I mean I went and bought a couple pints of raspberries a couple pints of I mean the little time, not even a pint the little flat thing that's was like maybe two layers thick uh, of uh, of blackberries today a couple of cartons of, of, of cottage cheese and I forget a couple of strawberry things it was like 30 bucks later And I'm like, how in the world, and you guys are buying the the premiums uh, product to put into your creations, Uh, what's happening to margins in the industry?
5: Well, they're non-existent. So, you know, we're lucky if we just break even. That's what we're going for. And it's not just about the cost of goods, the supply chain issues, but the taxes, the payroll taxes, the, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, all the taxes from a federal and a state perspective depending on what state you're in, uh, it's outrageous. You know, for example, right, I, I now have a full-service restaurant here in California. We pay our front of the house between 16 and $20 an hour to start. Minimum wage is about $14, right? So we always want to pay more than minimum wage, but those are for service. So then when they make tips on top of that, their their wages aggregate get to about $80 an hour. Well, I pay full payroll taxes on all the tips that they make. So at the end of the day, you know, (laughs) I'm paying taxes on the 16 to $20 an hour for front of house. And then I'm also paying full payroll taxes on the additional 50 to $60 an hour they make in tips. And that, Brings my payroll up to about forty five percent total, forty five cents on every dollar. So wow. if my food cost is at thirty cents on every dollar. I've now got twenty five cents to cover for credit card processing fees, electricity, insurance, marketing, everything, and that's relatively unheard of to be able to even keep that at twenty five percent. So it's a break even game.
0: Yeah, and and you know, there's a, there's going to come a point where folks won't be able to just to, to bear that, and that's where I, I keep hoping and that we do have a soft landing. I mean, I don't. Try that that's going to happen but hopefully the bottom won't fall out to where people despite their desire to uh, to hit the restaurants uh, won't do it uh, I got to ask you about something that's become a controversy and I, I I've been Brian and I were talking about it the other day and then I heard it on a national show and it was a discussion there's a trend and I and I know you're not in a carryout environment now but there's a trend at every carryout place you go to when you go to you know you, you, you tap or swipe your card and then there's this you know, this like do you want to give a tip, you know? <laughs> for carryout. And I've just what what are your thoughts on that? I mean I guess there's arguments both ways, but it seems to have become just a national expectation that you should at least consider a tip for carryout. What say you?
5: Yeah, I mean it cuts both ways, right? So on the one hand, you're subsidized; you're using the customer to subsidize the workers' wages. Um, uh, On the other hand, you're also, you know, you're giving the worker an opportunity to provide a great experience, and then they can get the incentive, you know, incentivizes their productivity to have the option to get a tip on that. Mm -hmm. So I've heard arguments all over the place. It's my personal contention that the tips are good because of that incentive basis, um, but you still should start from a place where you are paying your workers a pretty good wage to Mm -hmm. begin with, so it's not necessary to kind of subsidize their wage, yeah. and, um, you know, it's, it's, you're paying taxes on those tips anyways, right. as I mentioned, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect the business, it's not like it's free, they are free wages right, right. for the business, because yeah. people make the argument, they go, well, why should I tip, you know, you should just be paying them more, and you're getting me to pay them for free, well, not necessarily, because we're paying full payroll taxes on whatever gets tipped in the first yeah. place.
1: So, so hard.
0: Um, is it so hard to get people to work in re- in the restaurant industry?
5: Well, it is hard to get people to work in the restaurant industry because the restaurant industry has been vilified through the pandemic as being a a dangerous place to work, and b as yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but it was like the small business owners were the enemy of the pandemic, and the large, massive corporations were the great people, right? They were the ones virtue signaling, <laughs> oh, just do takeout and do drive-through and do delivery, and they had cash on the balance sheet to carry a massive worker force, um, you know, through the pandemic while they waited for their government handouts, while a lot of the restaurants and in the independents, hair, you know, bar hair stylists, auto mechanics, you name it. They had to continue trying to operate through the first stage of the pandemic because they still had bills to pay. And they didn't have cash on the balance sheet. And you know, this idea that the government was incentivizing and giving banks all this money so that they could distribute PPP loans and all the support, that's BS, right? You cannot get a loan at a bank, period, it's that easy. Like, unless you have assets and you have money, you can't get a loan. So they have done nothing to help small businesses or make it easier for small businesses to navigate through all of this.
0: Yeah, it's it's been crazy. So, a final question: You're out there in the in the socialist uh, United uh, Kingdom of of California. <laughs> I don't know how you continue to handle it, frankly, uh, Andrew. But whatever, God bless you. Um, are there are there DEI mandates and and some of this new woke ideology that that it really covers every small business, or is that still now left up to the business owner?
5: Well, I don't see it, so it's left up to the business owner. I mean, there's nothing that's, like, mandated okay, in writing. Good. I mean, there's certainly, you know, influence and, and all that, um, especially in California, but nothing nothing specific that I've seen in regards to the restaurant industry at this point.
0: Can we take that, that you're not having daily DEI huddles at what is always – I think the restaurant industry is probably the the least – Syste- historically, systemically racist industry of any, maybe except for the entertainment industry. You know, for, I was a musician for the longest time, and I I don't know what racism is. You know, I don't know what any of that is, but um, it's a very diverse uh, industry, isn't it?
5: It is incredibly diverse. You know, our whole thing is just treating each other with respect, you know, regardless of, you know, race, (laughs) creed, thoughts, any of that.
0: Yeah, as long as someone can cook or do a great service or be the front of the house, you know, you don't care, do you? I don't think, I think that's the way 99% of Americans are. They don't care. They just want people to do their job and do it well.
5: Exactly. And do it with love. You know, no, care that's a right.
0: job that's right and we can tell you love your food chef Andrew gruel thanks for joining me you guys can follow him at chef gruel on Twitter and of course he's got a Facebook presence as well thanks my friend appreciate thank it thank you so much all right so uh, there he is chef Andrew gruel and he's uh, he's been really very outspoken about um, a lot of uh Things going on that are anti-small business, anti-restaurant, anti, you know, uh, trying to help restaurateurs make it. And boy, what's going on up there in the name of pollution uh, in New York City is crazy. Now, regarding tips in uh, in the industry, Lee, I have to ask you more and more and more. And I asked Chef gruel about this and he was looking at it from the restaurateur's standpoint. I don't look at it as in a way that the restaurateur is trying to get away with not paying any more. but. What do you think about um, tips for carryouts? How do you feel about that?
3: Like, uh, like picking, like picking up your carryout, or somebody
1: no, delivered? No, no, no like,
0: no, like, no. What I mean is, when you go and you, you know, you order something from the barbecue joint or from the, oh. you know, whatever, from anywhere, and you're carrying out, you're not getting served at the table, mm-hmm. uh, but yet they ask for a tip. You know, and I'm not. This is not to begrudge people that are helping you, but that's a new thing it never used to be part of the uh, at least expectation or obligation Mm -hmm. or a request what what do you think do you tip at the carryout window
3: uh no
0: no no No, i don't think so i have on occasion if if someone like uh, you know i tipped the other day you know how you know why by the way, Carrie Lake coming up in just a few minutes. Carrie Lake, author of the number one Amazon bestseller, and I imagine it's probably on other uh, things already, and it's just out this week. Her book is uh, Unafraid, Just Getting Started. Um, I, I, I went to a barbecue joint for the first time, and I, and I said, hey, they said, what kind of sauce do you want? And I said, well, I don't know, what do you have? Well, we have our original, we have our hot, I have whatever. and I'm like, oh, man, which one? And, and without stopping a beat, The person who gave me my bag of barbecue said, why don't I give you some of each? Uh, I tipped her right there. Because it was, she went out of, right? She went, I didn't have to ask. She went beyond expectations. To me, that's why you give a tip, whether it's dine in or dine out. At any rate, that's my opinion. So I gave a little tip, but just for like, hey, you ordered at the kiosk and you got a burger and fries and now it pops up on the thing. Do you want to give a tip? And here's your bag, I don't think so. Not so much. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Hey, when we come back, uh, Carrie Lake is going to join us. And again, um, you know what happened to Carrie, uh, election day voting and the dependence on it by the GOP, uh, didn't work out so well for her, for, uh, uh, Laxalt, Paul Laxalt in Nevada and others. And I think there's been a shift in the way the Republican party is going to, well, in fact, they announced a shift just uh, recently in how they're going to address elections. So, uh, We'll look forward to talking to her. She's supposed to call us um, in just a few minutes. Um, You may want to let your friends and family know that she'll be on with us because I have a lot of questions for her regarding the election, regarding what her trajectory is, regarding, uh, you know, who she's backing for 24. I Got a feeling I already know the answer to that, but we'll see. Um, So it'll be an interesting conversation. Here on this 4th of July weekend edition of the Randy Tobler Show. By the way, if you can't catch all of the show every week, make sure that you check out the podcast on uh, the website, NewstalkSTL.com or on the app. Uh, I believe you can get it there as well. Uh, And that'll be up uh, Monday. Right? We'll have that up. Right, Leah? Yep. Okay, great. All right. The Great Carrie Lake coming up in our final segment. Keep it right here. All right, we uh, we had Carrie Lake on the uh, line, and we will get her back on the line. I think we had a little glitch in uh, cell phone tower connectivity, and so we will do that. But her book is really a compelling one, um, and you know it's very compelling when if you look at the reviews on Amazon, uh, there are many people giving her. One star and obviously, clearly anti Kerry Lake, anti Trump people from the left who are trolling and just being uh, mean spirited and talking about, uh, you know, this is this is a story of a woman who was. Is, uh, is she is she with us now? I'm Great. here. Hey, Carrie Lake joins us now. How you doing, Carrie? Thank you for joining me on this week on where we celebrate the greatest country the planet's ever seen and your new book just out. Unafraid. What a fabulous read it is. Unafraid, just getting started. Thank you.
4: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I'm really, uh, I really love St. Louis, and when I found out I was going to be talking to the people there this morning, it brought back many good memories of uh, weekends spent down in St. Louis.
0: I have to tell you, as we watched your trajectory, Carrie Lake, as you were running for governor there, and you emerged from being uh, the most popular, you know, news uh, broadcaster and, and broadcast journalist in Arizona to a, a national phenom um, and a friend uh, of Donald Trump. I think so many were just impressed with your um, personal story and how that applies to what many feel is a slipping opportunity for Americans to work hard, show resilience, and and ascend to heights that I think everyone aspires to. Those opportunities are being lost under the current woke leftist ideology, aren't they?
4: Well, I, I definitely agree with that. However, I think there is something happening and changing right now. And I can feel it. I'm all over this country. I talk to people all over America and more and more people are saying, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to start saying something. I'm going to speak out. I'm not going to give that media outlet my attention anymore. I'm not shopping there or buying that product. And that's a pretty big thing. You know, to me, I, I've been doing that for a long time. I'm <laughs> Obviously I, I'm a little, the name of the book, Unafraid, But I used to be afraid. I used to be afraid of being canceled and I used to be afraid of being ostracized. It's a natural instinct for human beings. But once you realize that you survive, when you make a a stand on your principles and you get on the other side of making that stand and you survive, it, it, it actually is a little bit emboldening and it makes you realize that you have a power that you probably didn't know you had before you took that stand. When I left my job, it was really scary. I was walking away from a seven-figure contract. I was at the you know top of my career, number one, um, and it was very it was a very frightening time to walk away from a job. It was during COVID. The economy still hadn't come around, nor has it, in my opinion. Um, and I stepped away from that, and and that was really scary. And I I really leaned heavily on God at that time, and I still do, by the way, every day, every minute. But I said, um, God, I'm I'm really kind of wrapped up in leaving the money, I'm going to be honest, and I, I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. I know it's the right thing, but I just don't want to look back with regret. And I talk about this in the book, how I said, give me a sign that I'm doing the right thing. And I, within a, you know, 30 seconds, I opened the Bible at my desk, uh, just a random page, and dropped my finger down. And the first verse staring back at me was 1 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 6. Verse seven, for you bring nothing into this world and it's certain you bring nothing out. And I thought, wow, that's what God is telling me. That paycheck, you don't take the paycheck with you. You you take what you've done in your life with you. You take Your legacy is what did you do in your life? How many hearts did you change? How many important stands did you make? And so I think that's where we are right now. And I, I see a lot of people who are, are standing up and maybe they don't have as big of a voice or as loud of a voice or as big of a you know, an audience or impact as I do. But they have an impact in their world. And, and we, at the heart of it, Randy, at the heart of our country, I believe America is still strong. And I know you probably have people there listening going, wait a minute, what is she talking about? We're falling to pieces. I'm talking at its foundation, the foundation our founding fathers set up, the Constitution, the, the very basics of this country are Constitution, Declaration of Independence. That's where the solutions lie. And just because this rotten federal bureaucracy and federal government and crooked politicians are as rotten as they've ever been, it doesn't change that foundation. But we do have to act so that they don't try to dismantle that. And I think they're they're eyeing that.
0: There's no doubt about it. We're talking with Kerry Lake, author of the now already just after a couple days of its release, author of Unafraid, um, Just Getting Started, a book that is uh, just uh, meteoric and for good reason. Uh, You know, I you had I'd like you to give us a little inside look on how you felt yesterday afternoon looking back at the result of Donald Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court. A restoration of constitutional textualism to the Supreme Court, and how how buoyed were you yesterday afternoon, looking back at Thursday and Friday's decisions?
4: Well, it's everything. I mean, the President Trump talked about that when he came into office. How many uh, judicial vacancies there were, and they were, you know, the suspicion was, and I, I believe it to be fact they had left those open for Hillary to come in and probably give them to the highest bidder and, and pay back some people who had done some things for her. That's not how president Trump operates. That's not how a true American statesman operates a true American statesman, a Patriot in that office, like president Trump found the best people for the job. And isn't it interesting that that's kind of what happened with the affirmative action ruling. It's about getting the best people in the positions Now, I wanna make sure that all Americans have the opportunity to do well and live the American dream. And I think affirmative action was set up because there was this fear that that wasn't possible because of of racism and things like that. To me, the biggest act of racism is being pushed on our minority and, and impoverished communities, forcing children in failing, awful schools that really should just be torn down. They're just horrible schools. They send the kids there, they learn nothing. And to me, that is an act of racism. The curriculum being taught at our school is, um, it's, it's really child abuse. We're psychologically abusing our children with this indoctrination. And so we need to get serious. If we want all kids, no matter what color their skin, no matter what socioeconomic, um, you know, uh, area they fall into, if we want them to succeed and live the American dream, it starts with education, a proper education, reading, writing, arithmetic, history, and, and real history, not this, you know, 1619 version, uh, a real true history of our country. And then I, I'm a big believer in when when I ran for governor, my education policy was, I thought exceptional, It was returning skills and life training in high school. So at 10th grade, you could get career training, you could get skills training, so you could get out of high school and get a high-paying job. The jobs are there. We need the bodies to fill them, and there's not a reason we can't prepare our own kids to fill those jobs.
0: There's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, I've often said in recent times, only half-jokingly, boy, wouldn't it be good if a guy like Mike Rowe find a way onto a ticket somewhere? Because I mean he he celebrates that that hard work, grit, resilience that can lead to a lot of success for people that don't have to go to college if they have the life schools that a proper education brings them. I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about the election and what it taught you. The the, the gubernatorial election, we all know You weren't even allowed to vote at your own polling place because big air finger quotes here, uh, you know, glitches. And I think the GOP has recently finally learned that, hey, we got to change our strategy. You can't depend on on Election Day turnout because things happen, whether they're nefarious or whether they're God created through weather events. Paul Laxalt saw that in Nevada. What is your advice to the GOP, to the RNC, uh, to the upcoming election and related? What? is Carrie Lake's future in politics? What does that look like?
4: Uh, well, uh, really quick on what you said about, about Mike Rowe. Um, a, a work ethic is at the center of all success. And we haven't been doing a good job teaching our kids that. Not everybody, and I'm not trying to point fingers at moms and dads out there. Moms and dads are out working themselves, you know? Um, so that is critical and I think we need to work on, on, on that. Uh, first and foremost, I'm blessed I had a work ethic from Midwest work ethic and a big family work ethic being the youngest of nine. So um, the, what did I learn from the uh, election? Well, I was the one candidate when I ran who was talking about the fraud in the 2020 election. And these other candidates were, were really rhinos um, and they were looking at me like I was a three-headed monster. And the media was looking at me the same way. And even people on that were on my side, on, on the inside, we're saying, maybe we shouldn't talk about the 2020 election fraud. You don't want to be labeled a conspiracy theorist. And I said, are you kidding? Me? Lately, the conspiracy theorists have been right about everything, okay? Um, we're going to talk about it because we can't take this amazing policy that we put together for Arizona. If we have rotten elections, we can't even get into office to right. implement this amazing policy. And the people were firmly and are firmly behind me. So I was raising the red flag. We did a lot to uh, try to remedy the problems we saw in 2020. We had poll workers, poll watchers, observers. We we had people all over the place.
0: But how? Just a minute left, Carrie. And I, I I, unfortunately, we have a minute left against our heartbreak. Oh, I was going to say, how would you
4: predict that they're going to sabotage election day? So I think we have to definitely. Ah, uh, vote early if that's how we're comfortable, but we have to fix the problem. We can't say we we should vote for a month. I'm a big believer in election day voting, and you vote in person. I'd like to get back to that someday.
0: Yeah, the question is, can we uh, can we beat the onslaught of mail-in voting, ballot harvesting, and everything else? I wish we had more time to talk. i'm very I'm grateful for your time with me, and I'm even more grateful for you writing the book, Unafraid just getting started by my guest Carrie lake uh bless you ma'am and thank you so much for being with me i really appreciate all you've done for the conservative movement
4: thank you so much this is a page turner it was not written by a consultant it came from my heart and from the forward written by donald trump to the first sentence of the first chapter you will be hooked all of the input i'm getting from people who've gotten it who've, who've yep. uh, texted me
0: and called me as i can't put this yep. book down It is riveting. Thank you, and happy July 4th to you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. That'll wrap it up for the Randy Tobler Show, and uh, we ran a little late, but that was an important uh, conversation for you to hear. Thanks for being with me. Happy birthday, America. See you next week.